Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Positively Trek Book Club. That's right. We are doing the book club this episode. And interestingly enough, this is kind of fun. There's not a lot of new Star Trek novel releases this year. And yet I've been doing up the schedule for the year for the book club. And so many of those slots are filled in with new releases because with the books kind of taking a little bit of a slow year, everything else has stepped up. We've been doing the comics like every two weeks with Brandy getting caught up with the ongoing comic series. But this week, something a little different, a collection of short stories from the Star Trek Explorer magazine. So this is from the book Star Trek Explorer presents the mission and other stories, a collection of 14 short stories. Now we're just going to do the first seven today. So if you're following along, uh, we have the just the first seven. And with me to do this is a familiar face and a really happy voice to have back on the show for this episode, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, welcome back. Yay, it's so good to be back. You know, sometimes people say, oh, yeah, you know, you, you used to do a podcast. And I'm like, well, I still make appearances every once in a while. And this is one of them. <laughs> Excellent. We're so happy to have you here. And it's always so much fun to podcast with you. Uh, it feels like old times. You just kind of fall into old routines. And, you know, once we've got our claws into you, Bruce, we're not going to let go. We're going to have to keep bringing you back. Well, you know, <laughs> that's probably easier than you think. Because <laughs> usually if you say, hey, you want to come? I'm like, yeah, sure. So and uh, I don't know what my schedule will be like in the next few months, because the things I've been doing on stage either maybe picking up or maybe slowing down for various like personal reasons that schedules aren't going to work out. Well, like I have a show, I have an opportunity to be in a show that would premiere the night that my daughter is graduating from college. Oh my goodness. So Jeez, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pick my wow. daughter over the show. So there's stuff like that. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And then I have to say this, I'm sorry, but then I've got another show opportunity that the weekend premiere is during STLV. And I've been promising people I'll go to STLV this year. And now I'm like, ugh, but then I'm going to miss that show. And I'm, so, yeah, I'm trying to figure things out. Uh, life is, life's crazy. That's tough. And like, even beyond all of that, your boss is currently trying to buy Paramount uh, Studios. So <laughs> that's probably figuring into stuff too. So yes, it mm, is. Busy times. I know. Work right? and personal life. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to position, position myself to be the person that runs Star Trek for Paramount <laughs> if my boss ends up yes. getting Paramount. So we'll see how that works out. Excellent. Excellent. You can make all the haters just absolutely hate you by like renewing Alex Kurtzman's contract for the next 20 years or something. <laughs> Which I might do. So I'm sorry. It just all depends. We'll see. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Well, we're not here to talk about deals to buy Paramount or any of that stuff. We are here to talk about these short stories from the Star Trek Explorer magazine. Now, 
I kind of let my Explorer subscription lapse some time ago. I haven't been getting, been getting the uh, new magazines. Uh, I decided I would just buy the issues as they come out on newsstands. As I was telling Bruce before we started recording, I checked every place I can buy magazines in my hometown here. And th- it's not available. They're not carrying it anymore. Even the downtown store that supposedly has all the magazines you can get, just shelves and shelves of them. They're just not carrying this anymore. So uh, I have had to renew my subscription to Star Trek Explorer. And uh, these stories I've been reading in this lovely volume that they just put out. Uh, Star Trek Explorer presents the mission and other stories. And this was just released back on February 13th, uh, just a couple weeks ago, or just uh, last week, I guess, as we're recording this two weeks ago as this episode uh, comes out, but it's, uh, it's not a bad volume. It's the, the printing's a little bit cheap. The paper is not quite as thin as a magazine paper, but it's close. (laughs) They didn't put a ton of money into this release, but, uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about where money may have gone and may not have gone, uh, in this printing as we, as we go through. But, uh, yeah, so, Bruce, you read these, though, in each magazine. Is that right? Yeah, I have a digital subscription to the magazine. So for this show, I had to go back and reread them in the different issues because they're not sequential. It's not like when you get this book volume, it's going to start with the first story that was published. And they're all kind of mixed. So as we go through the show, I'll mention where each story appears in which issue But like, for example, the first story in this book is in Explorer number six in the digital supplemental, but then the next story is in issue number five's supplemental. So it changes Mm. throughout the, it's not in the order they were published in the magazine is what I'm saying. So yeah. So if you're following along at home, if you don't have this book, if you just have the magazines, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Bruce will let you know which magazine you can find it in and, uh, it might sounds like it's a little more difficult to follow along linearly uh, as we go through this if you don't have this book but uh, we'll keep you on the straight and narrow we'll help you figure it out there yeah because if i can figure it out you can figure it out people come on (laughs) (laughs) all right well let's start with the first story then this is the story control by john peel despite the title has nothing to do with section 31 or malevolent ai Uh, Instead, it's a story set aboard the NX-01 Enterprise uh, with Archer. And really the only people we see is kind of this crewman we've never seen before, uh, Archer and Porthos, his dog. So interesting story. This was, I think, in my mind, kind of a fun one to start this out with. So it's all from the perspective of this mysterious carnivorous life form on this planet that kind of can alter the minds and read the minds of the creatures around it. And it seems that all of the life on this planet is not sentient. It's not used to encountering kind of this sentience that humans have. And it detects the thoughts of an enterprise crew member. And it also has the ability because it can alter people's minds. It can disguise itself in their minds as various things. So it disguises itself as a particularly interesting geological sample and is brought aboard the Enterprise NX-01 
in order to feed on the crew and it decides that it's going to reproduce and spread basically throughout all these different planets now that it understands what planets are and stuff and i don't know this was kind of fun it was interesting to see things from its perspective and and see it learning about the world around it or the universe around it i guess yeah this one wasn't a favorite of mine but i read it a second time and i liked it better the second time i think the first time i read it i was a little confused trying to picture what this creature mm. looked like because there was never really a good description just a, there's a brief description i couldn't really visualize what it looks like but it does feel very alien because of what you just said of it reading minds and how it has to basically suck on other <laughs> prey to survive and multiply and what i like is how the creature really looks at this human as very alien like there's nothing on mm. its planet that's anything like this human and that this human has two sexes there's a male and female which was also very interesting to this creature that doesn't really understand why that this human would how they reproduce and they do it for fun <laughs> you know that sometimes they mm. don't do it to actually reproduce they just do it for fun you know, and it's like, why would you have sex for fun? Right. <laughs> but yeah, it's very foreign to this, uh, to this creature. So I did find that interesting. And yeah, so as the story goes on, it kind of appears to other things as something completely non-threatening, right? Like it, it plucks something from their mind and, and decides what would appear most non-threatening or appealing to people around it. So one of the things that I liked about this story was kind of the idea of how close this thing came to getting out. And it sounds like it would wreak havoc on worlds and just feed on people and things and be kind of unstoppable because you wouldn't be able to see what it is. But it gets to Jonathan Archer's quarters and is, you know, going to feed on Archer and notices this small quadruped nearby, Porthos, of course. And the way the story wraps up, I actually really liked the ending of this story where he's like, oh, I'd better appear to, to this dog as something completely non-threatening that it'll like and appreciate. And Porthos immediately runs over and chews him up and kills him. And it turns out that to Porthos, it looked like a chew toy. So, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, like that was a, that was a little odd. That was something I had to read twice because it's like, okay, he comes in, Porthos is there. Oh, I'll make Porthos think that, you know, I'm something very nice and he won't bother me. And then it says, and as he was dying, and I was like, wait, what? As he was dying. And then it kind of reveals like, oh yeah, he was a chew toy. But it took me a moment to really figure out, wait, did I just not read something? Did I miss something? Yeah, I mean, that's it, it's kind of cute how that happened. And this creature also reminded me of the Tribbles, because you were saying earlier about mm. how they could wreak havoc. And it's like, well, because, yeah, they they will eventually multiply. They split in two, and they could just keep multiplying. And I thought, is... And for one moment, I thought, could this be a triple? And I was like, no, that doesn't make any sense to the story. But it kind of reminded me of that. <laughs> no, it was, I, I thought it was interesting. Again, like you said, that perspective, that alien perspective and seeing us as aliens. Some of my favorite stories are kind of in that perspective, like from the Malkorians in the TNG episode, First Contact, where Riker's undercover with them. The first half of that story is kind of from their their perspective. There's these weird visiting aliens that are infiltrating their society and, 
you know, it's, it's just the enterprise team trying to make first contact, but, uh, and from this creature's perspective, everything is so weird. And really Porthos saved the galaxy, I guess, from this thing getting out. It's, uh, maybe don't visit this planet anymore though, because it seemed to get out really easily. That was scary. <laughs> yeah. Which made me wonder why this officer was down there by herself, unless there were others there and she was just on her own in that certain area of the planet, you know? And then, mm-hmm. uh, her name is Savannah, but her friends call her Vanna. So the creature refers to humans as Vanna's. Mm-hmm. So, you know, were you picturing Vanna White's running around the Enterprise? <laughs> <laughs> Initially, maybe for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but what I really thought was interesting was how certain officers would talk to Vanna when she got on the ship. And he's like, oh, another Vanna. There's another Vanna saying something. And I kept thinking, like, who is it? Is it is that T'Pol? Is that Trip? Like, I was wondering, mm. who are these other officers that's talking to her? And it may not be any characters that we know. But at one point, I was wondering if we would find out. It, it, it doesn't pertain. You don't need that for the story. But I was just wondering as I was reading it. So one thing that we should bring up is uh, something that I, f- I feel like there's at least one per story in this that we're <laughs> going to have to bring up throughout the course of this. And that's kind of a, an editorial mistake or, or just uh, sometimes it's just typos. Sometimes it's weird things. In this one, the crew member refers to the Enterprise in her mind as the USS Enterprise, which that's not right. The the NX-01, this is very nitpicky of us, but that's not a USS Enterprise. So I, I immediately caught on to that and you said you did too. And it kind of threw you as to what the story was going to be going forward. Yeah, because when you look at the story, there's pictures of the NX-01 and there's a picture of Archer. And I thought, oh no, the editor got it wrong. This story doesn't take place during Archer's time. This is another Enterprise in the future, a USS Enterprise. And I thought, well, maybe the pictures are wrong. But then, of course, when we're introduced to Archer, I was like, "Uh, well, okay, I guess that was an error. But the creature says that the human called it the USS Enterprise. So maybe that was just her pet (laughs) name for the ship is US. She likes calling things USS things. You're being very charitable, but I appreciate it. I always try to make it work somehow. <laughs> yeah, I simple mistake, I think. And and one actually that it should be pointed out, the show even made at one point. There's a, in the season four episode, do you remember when the Enterprise and the Columbia were doing that maneuver where they the Columbia flipped over and they transferred trip over at warp. Yeah. The, the computer screen as to Paul is monitoring the ships getting closer. They're labeled USS enterprise USS Columbia. So the, the art department messed that up. Oh, on that one. wow. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. So it's not unprecedented. Wow. Okay. So maybe that is the official name. It just wasn't written on the hall of the ship. <laughs> yeah, sure. That could be. Yeah. Well, we'll I mean, we have that. USS Enterprises <laughs> now, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. I'll, I'll give this story a pass on that one. Excellent. All right. So yeah, when we get through the rest of these stories, we'll kind of come back and say what are our favorites and and that sort of thing. But uh, in the meantime, I guess uh, let's move on to story number two. Yeah, just real quick. The uh, I'm sorry. The story one, and just to remind, that is in Explorer number six, the digital supplemental. Just to remind what I said earlier. So, but yes, the Guardian. Yes, which is in Explorer number five, digital supplemental. Excellent. So yeah, The Guardian by Gary Russell. And this is a prequel to a TOS episode. So uh, it's kind of talking about 
the end of the civilization on XO2 from the season one TOS episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of? And if you don't remember that episode, that's the one where Christine Chapel and Kirk beam down to find Roger Corby. And he's led this expedition. There's these androids. And, and by the end of the episode, spoiler alert, it turns out that Roger Corby is in fact an android, as are all of the other people there. They've transferred themselves into androids or created android copies of themselves. But there's this other android there from the, the before times, this huge hulking android named Ruck. And we kind of find out how he came to be there through the eyes of these folks who are experiencing the end of their civilization with this society that uh, has been destroyed by the androids they created kind of like the Cylons, I guess they, <laughs> their plan initially was to transfer their consciousnesses into Android bodies to survive because there was some genetic thing happening that they couldn't reproduce, but in order to, in a, as a little kind of step in that direction, they created a bunch of androids to serve them. And then those worker androids uh, rebelled and killed everybody. And it's quite horrific. This is like the final days of this civilization. So uh, what did you think of this one, Bruce? This is a bit creepy and <laughs> yes. I liked it. <laughs> I think, um, I think I know why they put in these stories in this order, because the first one to me is a bit creepy too, but this is even creepier. And they all take place on these different planets, which is typical in Star Trek. But I'm just, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you know, the these stories aren't about our typical crew members in a ship going somewhere and getting on some adventure. This is always dealing with somebody more alien. And you've got these people on this planet with these androids and, you know, a guy is out there shouting, you know, that, you know, they did wrong and, you know, things bad are going to, bad things are going to happen. And they're like, you know, well, you know, he's at least distracting the androids. And this couple's like, we could, we could run, we could go back to the caves and, you know, it kind of reminded me of almost like The Walking Dead, that kind of story, mm, you know, yeah. in that. And yeah, but when they get to the caves and they find people, oh. you know, dead there, their friends are all dead because they took a poison because they'd rather die that way than be killed at the hands of these androids. That that was really creepy. Yeah. Reading this story and we get got to that part, I was like, I don't think any story in this book is going to be darker than this. I was wrong, by the way. We'll get there. But uh, yeah, this this was this was brutal. The author, Gary Russell, didn't really pull any punches with this story. I think it and it becomes really affecting because of that. Yeah. And then, you know, this couple, the the wife takes the poison, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it's kind of you know, for lack of a better term, off screen, right? Yeah. Because the husband is going to go on ahead and sh she says she's going to stay there with her friends. And he kind of knows what that means. But as he's walking away, he hears like the, the cup hit the floor that she's drank from. Right. And, Ooh, that was, that was really well written. That really affected me. Yeah. It, it was one of those things. Again, I had to go back and read that part once I got through it because it didn't really build towards that, that she was going to do that. Or she was so distressed at this point that she had to do, he was just like, Oh, well let's keep going. She's like, well, I'm just going to stay here behind with my friends. And yeah, he hears the cup, like her, you know, trying to hold a cough back and, and the cup, it just didn't feel like, like I was kind of surprised. I guess what, that's what I'm saying is I was surprised she did that. I thought she would go with him because they're trying to survive. And it takes them two days to get to the caves and then they find their friends and, I would think that she would go with him and I didn't really feel like she was at a point that she would 
kill herself. But obviously her friends really did get to her and she just couldn't move on anymore. Mm -hmm. But then he dies too. Yeah. They, this was one that, yeah, it kind of ended. I, I kind of had to reread it a little bit to kind of absorb that ending a little bit. And of course we have Ruck, this android who we meet in What Are Little Girls Made Of? Thousands of years later, basically, he's still been there operating the machinery for all these years. And it made me want to go back and rewatch this episode because it's been quite a while. But I remember when they're kind of, I think Kirk is kind of reawaking the memories in Ruck and he'd kind of forgotten. He was like, oh yes, the, they had to be destroyed because of they enslaved us or whatever. And it was, it was interesting seeing the beginning of, of his vigil over the, those machines, I guess, for all those years. Yeah, I was hoping to rewatch this episode before we recorded and I didn't get to because it's been a long time since I've seen it. So I'm definitely going to watch it this weekend <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, this really got me invested into this story and and want to go see that episode again and see how this story relates to that episode. But I wasn't sure if this guy, I knew he died at the end, but he didn't take the poison. So it just seemed like he just died because he just didn't have it in him anymore. That's how I took it. Yeah, it's very weird. At, at the very last line of the story, it, he just says, he says, thank you, Ruck. Hobbs smiled, closed his eyes, and let the darkness take him for the last time. So I'm not sure how or why he died exactly. I'm, I'm trying to remember, maybe I missed, like, was he injured at some point? I don't think so. Or No. I, I don't remember that. I went back and read through it some, and I thought, did he drink the poison or grab the poison and take it with him? Or something? And I didn't pick up on anything like that. Um, but see, mm-hmm. this is where I think some of these stories kind of suffer a little that when you're writing for this magazine, there's a certain word count and maybe they have to edit it down to make it fit. And so some things get sacrificed in this. Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's some things that, that definitely get trimmed down and, uh, we'll talk about that with the the next story, especially is, is where I really noticed this. So I enjoyed the guardian. I think that was a strong story. I, I it definitely a niche part of star Trek kind of doing a prequel to this TOS episode, but a really good one. I enjoyed it for sure. Yeah, me too. And the fact that it makes me want to rewatch that episode is a good sign. So mm-hmm. that's, that's fun. If, it, if I didn't think that much about the story, I'd probably not go back and watch the episode. Well, let's move on then to the third story in this book, the disavowed by Christopher Cooper. And uh, where can people find that story if they're not reading this book? That's in Explore number four in the digital supplemental. Excellent. So yeah, the disavowed Christopher Cooper is the writer and this is a TNG story. So we're kind of moving forward in the timeline, I guess. I I, I can see maybe that's how they did the order of these because it's pretty much TNG from here on out now in these first seven stories anyway. Yeah, that's true. I remember thinking that it was TNG heavy in the first half. Yeah. So the disavowed, we've got Riker and Troy and Data on this planet, Pivadan, Pivadan. There's two eyes in there. I have no idea how to pronounce that. I was li- I was going to let you figure that one out because I can't. <laughs> And they're, they're taking part in these negotiations between these two factions that are kind of at odds. They want to join the Federation. Riker at one point stands up to make some remarks to the assembled people. And in the middle of his remarks, everybody immediately starts ignoring him and packing up to leave while he's still talking, which 
Riker feels is a little bit rude what's going on there. And he can't seem to get Deanna or Data to acknowledge him. And at one point his hand passes through Deanna and they're acting as though he's never even existed. And uh, my mind is immediately going to when LaForge and Roe were knocked out of phase by the Romulan thing. And like that seems to be kind of going on. He realizes that no one can see him. He's been erased from their memories and uh, he's wondering what the heck's going on. He can't seem to, to figure this out. But we find out it's a localized effect because when Data and Troy beam back up to the Enterprise, Picard immediately asks, where's Riker? <laughs> They're like, ooh, what are you talking about? So it turns out something local, something happened there and they investigate. And meanwhile, Riker is trapped in this little area with this, you know, there's, there's remains of other people there and this really old guy who's there as well. So it's a mystery that uh, they've got to figure out what's going on and who's behind it. Hmm. I wonder who it could be. The only other named character in the story, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Or maybe it's that creature from the very first story wants to suck on people. Uh, but now, you know, when you, I, I thought about what you just said, too, about, you know, uh, the Romulan face shifting with uh, Roe and LaForge. And how in this story, right up to this point that you're talking about, this older guy that Riker finds in there says that this technology that's being used to help make this happen to Riker and for the others to forget about him is uh, an old ancient technology that was restored with the help of a Ferengi. But mm -hmm. now I think about it, it would have been better if it was a Romulan for the reasons of that story, you know, helping with the phase shifting because it would make more sense mm -hmm. for Romulans to do that than Ferengi. But uh, yeah. at this point in the story, I was, I was wondering like, how is it possible that, okay, I can understand how he phases out, but especially when he's making a speech and then everybody starts leaving as if it never even happened. I was like, okay, I can understand phasing him out, but then how do these people not realize that he was there and not go, wait, what happened to him? Where did he disappear? But of course, we find mm -hmm. out this technology also affects them, just takes it out of their me their memories of this person that they phase out. Yeah. So here's my issue with that, though. Like, okay, so first of all, they describe the technology that phases him out, and it actually sounds very fam very similar to what happened to Rowan LaForge. So I think that's kind of the similar technology. But there's also this field, like you said, that that erases the memories and and rewires some neurons and stuff to kind of take out all the memories of this person throughout their life. And apparently it works on data like that. That was kind of glossed over quickly. Like, oh, it, it altered his, uh, his positronic brain memories as well. And I feel like that was a bit of a stretch. Like if you're going to have this technology do that, you know, that this ancient technology that's, you know, never encountered, like, let's be honest, probably never encountered human brains before anyway. So that's like a whole nother thing. But, you know, an android positronic brain doing the same thing that it does to the biological brain. That seems crazy. Why have data beam down in this? Why not have someone else there? I didn't understand that. Like, just eliminate that problem altogether. That's a good question. You're right. Because when Crusher is examining Troy and then they find out from LaForge that what's happening to Troy, this exact same thing is happening in Data. 
it's like it doesn't really make sense because it would have to be something very physical, but one is used on machinery and the other ones were used on the brain. Yeah, it's like, Mm -hmm. you're right. It would make more sense if it was like Troy and Worf come back from the planet, for example, or LaForge or somebody like that, you know? Yeah. Um, And then the two officers would just be examined by Dr. Crusher herself instead of Data on one side of the ship and Troy on another. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, why put Data in there? But then I think Data is used to help solve it. And I think maybe it's felt that that's more keen to his character in some ways. But again, I think that that could work with others. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And also, so this, this counselor Bjornsson, which sounds like, who, who is this author trying to like talk about here? Because that's a, that's a very human sounding name, but they've changed it so that like it's B apostrophe Y O R N. But like Bjornsson is like a a Scandinavian type name. It's just spelled differently. But anyway, um, this counselor, she's the one that set this all in motion and uh, she doesn't seem very smart to do this because like I said, everybody on the enterprise still remembers Riker. So as soon as they beam up, they're going to know something's wrong and come down and everything's going to come unraveled. Like, it seemed very short-sighted of her to implement this plan with the enterprise people because like that's that's how you guarantee that you're going to get found out unless yeah unless her thought is once some other officers beam down she'll do the same thing to them and just keep doing it every time somebody beams down but when they beam down she didn't like she was i guess maybe caught off guard you know yeah she maybe. wasn't ready for that you know she thought maybe they would alert her to coming down and she'd have time to do something. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I didn't really think about that too much, but yeah, you're right. I mean, as soon as they get back and they, (laughs) they're like, I don't know who Will Riker is. Of course the enterprise isn't going to just leave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's weird. I I could have sworn I had a first officer named Riker. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) There I go again, being so silly, assuming I had this other William Riker on my ship. I guess we should just go now. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, oh, they'll take off and Riker will be here for the rest of his life and no one will ever come looking for him again. (laughs) It's bizarre. Like, I don't understand her. So she uses this device to get rid of political rivals, basically. And she was like, this guy is going to stop us from joining the Federation. So I'm going to get rid of him and now you're just going to get into the Federation because you seemingly erased a Starfleet officer, but not from everybody on the ship. I Anyway, <laughs> it seems like not a good plan. <laughs> yeah, but again, this story, I mean, I like this story. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But again, I think this story could benefit from just a little more, a little more weight to it. Like explain, like what was her motivation? Like what was her plan? Once the officers get back, she knows they're going to come like, you know, and maybe she's working to deceive them in some other way and doing something else or whatever, but it's just not working quite right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it could use a little more weight to it. So I'm wondering if this story suffers from what we were talking about before, where it has to be shorter and and fit into this because this is the one where I really feel that abrupt ending. Like at the very end, basically it's two small paragraphs before the very end of the story that Picard is asking, what did you do with my first officer? What's going on? 
and he appear he reappears they shut down the equipment and they they reverse it and stuff and he hugs Deanna and that's the end like we don't get any kind of resolution as to what this counselor's motivation was like you said and and what the fallout from this is or anything like that it's just Riker's not back and then he's back <laughs> and that's <laughs> it <laughs> i read this twice and both times when i get to the ending i turn the page and go oh wait that was the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it just, boom. It just, like, Riker appears. Oh, Will's here. The end. Yeah. And also, the pictures are from season two. And uh, this is not a season two story because when Troy and Data beam up to the ship and Picard's like, you know, where's William Riker? And they're like, who are you talking about? I don't know. What, who's this Will Riker guy? And he's like, you know, he was, he's been my first officer on the ship for many years. So many years I went mm-hmm. put into season two, but Dan, you and I were talking earlier. There's another reason why this probably didn't take place in season two. Yeah, for sure. Well, the many years thing, I full credit to you. I didn't catch that. That's a really good catch for me. It was all the pictures are from season two. So you've got Riker in the old style uniform with the beard but then he gets checked out by Dr. Crusher aboard the ship, which if you go strictly by what you see on screen, when Riker has the beard, Dr. Pulaski is aboard and Crusher isn't. And then by the time Crusher comes back, they have the the season three onward uniforms. This, you know, you could say there's some overlap maybe on either end of that, that we didn't see where they still had those uniforms and she had returned or she hadn't quite left yet, but Riker had grown the beard or whatever but doesn't quite jive with what we see on screen. So I, I, I wasn't really too fussed about that. But when you brought up the many years thing, I was like, okay, that clinches it. The story was not written from a season two perspective for sure. But they just decided to like, oh, we're going to put season two pictures on this. Well, this isn't really all that uncommon, even in especially some of the early Star Trek novels where you would pick up a TOS novel and they're in the TOS uniforms from the series, but the novel takes place during the movie era, you know? Yeah. That's a good call. There's things like that. And so again, it's like that don't judge a book by its cover. And I really don't take much attention. I don't really pay that much attention to the pictures in here because it's really the story. And, but There's another thing in here I forgot until now, and I just looked Mm. it up on here. It's in the first column of this story where I remember reading this thinking, this doesn't seem like season two, because when Riker gets up to speak, it says in the very last paragraph of the of the first column, Riker adjusted his uniform tunic and took her place at the center of the chamber. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I had that thought as well, that like they didn't really, this one piece spandex thing wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I, I found this story to I, I thought I found this to be a fun story. I was v- definitely interested in like, okay, why can't he be seen? Why do they forget him? How's that even possible? What's the purpose of it? So I was very intrigued as I was reading through it. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Um, I, I feel like it maybe doesn't hold up under close scrutiny once you start really thinking about stuff. But again, like we said, that might be a result of it having to be shortened or uh, maybe not explaining some of the story elements as, as well as it could, if it had a bit of a longer format. Yes. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Positively Trek is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. A special thank you to our Constitution class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Mirren, and Paul D. Kinnear. To help out with the podcast, visit patreon.com slash positivelytrek, where, for a small monthly donation, you can get early access to ad-free episodes, shout-outs, exclusive content, associate producer credits, and more. Thank you so much for listening, and live long and prosper. So what's the next one? So next we have the story Pagabi is how I, I'm choosing to pronounce this. Pagabi by Chris Dows. Uh, and uh, where where can we find that one if you're reading the magazines? That is in Explorer number five. It's not in the digital supplemental. It's in the actual mm. magazine. The first one in this list that is in the actual magazine of uh, issue number five. Well, so in Pagabi, we have Guinan uh, fencing with Picard, and in the course of this, she collapses, and uh, there's this medical emergency. She's having some sort of attack or in some sort of arrest. And meanwhile, outside the ship, there's this tear in the space-time continuum. Uh, they've detected this this tear that's, you know, emanating energy or whatever. I'm fully expecting at this point, by the way, the Enterprise C to come through or something like mm-hmm. that. Like this is feeling yesterday's Enterprise or something, but no, it's, it's not. It's this uh, rip in the fabric of space that seems to be getting bigger and they figure that it will, you know, expand to threaten planets and systems if it's left unchecked. And there's this strange light that's kind of zipping around inside it that looks like it's making it bigger. Seeing no other options, Picard orders Worf to fire a torpedo at the life form. Like I said, it seems to be growing this anomaly. It seems to be what the threat is, and they don't have a lot of time. Now, when this happens, Guinan basically goes to the transporter room, overpowers the the transporter operator, and beams herself to the coordinates there in space where this life form is, uh, they beam her back and she's kind of melded with this life form that is called the Pagabi. And we learn that she, uh, as an Elorian has a symbiotic relationship with this life form and they help each other out a lot. And this life form's job is to basically seal tears and fix rips in the space time continuum and stuff, which is really interesting. That's very cool. No, I mean, that's exactly how I feel about this story. I thought this was a pretty cool story. I thought it was interesting how, you know, Guinan and her people work with this alien entity to repair rips in space and kind of helps to um, feed them to just continue to move on and and do these things. And I mean, I didn't see it coming. I, I, you know, you think, you know, it's attacking Guinan. 
But then we find out it's not attacking Kyan, but she's going through all this pain. But it's like childbirth, right? <laughs> it's like you're going through the pain of childbirth, but it's there's a good result that comes from it, you know? And that's kind of what's going on here with Guinan. It's like even though this is painful for her and her knuckles are going white and, you know, she's helping this being so it can go do its mission. And, yeah, I thought it was a very interesting story. Um, I, I really like this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this one has a lot to lend itself to being a really good story. It's paced really well for the length. I felt that like this one wasn't as rushed as some, like there's some parts that I wish they'd had a bit more time to expand on a bit, but for the most part, it's not like, oh crap, we need to um, resolve this in just a couple paragraphs. We have to No, like the conclusion of this story is... I think well-paced and, and works really well. I also, I really like the character of Guinan and I kind of like the Elorians, how they've kind of become like, oh, we need them to have another characteristic and they're kind of strange and mysterious. So that's okay. Yeah, sure. Like how in Picard, we learned that not only do they live a really long time, they kind of control how they age and stuff, which was kind mm-hmm. of new. We learned that. And now here non-canon story of course we learn that they have this symbiotic relationship with these life forms which i don't know that's i feels like something that hasn't really been done in star trek outside of like the trill with their the two parts of their being so i thought this is unique and interesting and i kind of want to learn more (laughs) yeah and what you just said wanting to learn more i think i think like you said the pacing was just right i got enough from the story but if it could be expanded i would like to see it conclude with a conversation between Guinan and picard about Mm, you know what this is about and and why and the history of it and that would be some good insight into it but uh yeah, I really like this one. This is a this is a top one for me. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, the characters really sound like themselves in this one, I think, more than some of the other stories. Like, I just, I really heard the character voices come through. Out of all the ones we've read so far, I think this one would make the best episode. Like, I would love to see this as, you know, a, a mid-season episode of TNG at some point. It, I think it would work really well. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'd like to see this as an episode too. And now the the artwork for this, isn't this used on the cover of the book? Yeah. So yeah, when you see the the book copy of, of Star Trek Explorer presents the mission and, and other stories, that is, uh, that's what you see there. Yeah. And it's really interesting artwork. When I first saw it with the white eyes, I was like, oh, are they going to tie this to Gary Mitchell and the galactic barrier or something, but uh, no, that's not where the story goes, but it's still really, really interesting. The other thing I like about this story and the one before this is the use of Troy about her abilities Mm -hmm. to sense things and feelings. And she's the one who says, you know, don't sever the link between this being or don't kill it with it's Guinan once they're like Guinan and Troy are communicating with each other. So I thought that was cool with those two characters. Yeah. And some cool moments where, you know, Guinan, she can't communicate because she's kind of using all her resources to care for this being. But when the Enterprise crew makes some realizations and figures out what's going on and decides to help her, she, you know, there's like a little curl of a smile on her face Mm -hmm. as she, I, I just loved little moments like that, that I feel like with this short format might've been hard to kind of work in those details because stuff like that would be 
some of the stuff that gets axed if you're trying to shorten it. So I like that the author felt those were important enough to focus on when writing this story. Absolutely. Yep. I think this one's uh, definitely a winner. Well, let's move on to the next one then, which is one that I was kind of most excited about when I read all the little synopses of this, because I was curious. Pulaski 2.0 by Greg Cox. And we can find Pulaski 2.0 in Explore number four in the Digital Supplemental. Mm, digital Supplemental, fitting for uh, what happens to Pulaski in this one. <laughs> Yes, because, you know, there's a lot of Pulaski fans, so they want another version of her. Of course, yeah. I mean, everybody loves Pulaski, right? <laughs> <laughs> I actually do, for the record. I, I do love Pulaski. And so do I. She's really grown on me as I've, as I've gotten older. I think she's actually a really great character. And, and this is an interesting story because in this one, she gets to experience life as an android. So kind of seeing how data lives, basically. Uh, so there's this basically leper colony, which is how they describe it. There's this planet and on it is this most communicable virus ever that isn't stopped by quarantine fields or biofilters. They don't really explain how, just that it is able to bypass all those things. And there's this doctor who's working there to try and come up with a cure. And he's very close. However, there's been an explosion. He's been badly injured and needs a heart replacement. So they need to bring in a surgeon who is uh, qualified to do that, which Pulaski is. Uh, however, she, of course, can't go to the planet because of how communicable this virus is. So it's decided that using the technology that is kind of akin to Sargon's people, from the TOS episode Return to Tomorrow, uh, that they're going to put her consciousness in an android body and use that to operate on this guy. Now, just interjecting here, one thing that I loved, with, they were talking about like, oh, this is from the logs of Dr. Anne Mulhall, who worked on, on this um, back in the day. Anne Mulhall, in that episode, played by Diana Muldar, who also plays Catherine Pulaski. So, Greg Cox, I see what you're doing there. I yeah. see you. Yeah, I didn't think about it until you said the name <laughs> and then it clicked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they mentioned that. She's like, oh, I'm looking over the logs of Dr. Anne Mulhall or whatever. And I'm like, oh, oh, nice. But yeah, she's uh, down on this planet operating on this guy. And uh, it turns out that one of the patients there actually caused the explosion that injured him because he's kind of losing his mind because of this virus. And he doesn't want the guy to cure the virus because that means that their home will be uh, done in his kind of disease addled mind. He, he, in his madness, that's his logic there. Uh, and he tries to basically suicide bomb the operating room where the doctor is in right after Pulaski has finished the surgery. But Pulaski, with her android body, kind of, you know, covers him and takes the brunt of the explosion and saves the doctor uh, in more than one way over the course of this story. And at the end, my favorite part of the story is the little talk that she has with Data seeing things from his perspective, which is kind of really what the story's all about. So yeah, this one was an interesting one for sure. And this one, I, I do feel like the pacing was just right for this. It all fit mm -hmm. in. I didn't feel like it was rushed or something was missing throughout. 
so I I enjoy the fact that Pulaski I, – I, I like the setup of this where you can't go to the planet even in some kind of environmental suit right suit because, you know, this virus can get through. And so once you're on the planet, you can never leave. So putting Pulaski in an android body because of her relationship with Data makes it really interesting to the point that I would like to have explored – more of her feelings and maybe like if you could do a longer story that maybe she's on the planet for a few days and really like trying to come to grips with being in this body and, and going through some of the things maybe data has gone through and really st- starting to really understand what it would be like to be an Android. Cause she's down there for just a short period of time and everything's a rush and the story works, but it makes me want to see her in that place a little longer, but the story, you know, length won't give us the time to do that but because of that pacing what's also fun bit she's going in she's got to get back because she can't transfer her katra back to her own body after a certain period of time so she's got to get this heart transplant or whatever done as quickly as she can so she can get back and then on the ship we have dr salar there saying I can't bring her Katra in even as a Vulcan, but there, there's like her body could be dying now. So you've got her having to get back quickly, but she's got to take mm-hmm. care of this guy as quickly as possible at the same time that her body is dying on the Enterprise. So it was, you know, there was sus- suspense there. While at the same time now, yeah, she tackles that guy and he explodes. <laughs> it's just like there's a lot going on. Yeah, the the ticking clock worked really well for this story, I think. I think that really helped with the pacing. It it was fast like there's a there's a fast pace to the story but it's kind of baked into the story so i think it really works and greg cox just seems to be a master at this because the more i think of this story there's a lot in there like a lot happens really fast but i can't really say it doesn't feel rushed it does feel rushed but it feels like it's supposed to feel rushed you know like it's it the that ticking clock and that deadline she has gives a momentum to this story that carries it forward and doesn't make it feel weird that things are jumping really fast because they have to jump really fast. So he uses that really well. And then the very end, I love that after all this, he has the time to have that conversation between Pulaski and data without which I think the story loses all meaning. It just becomes a kind of meaningless action thing. If you don't have that wrap up with data, what's it all about? Why did we tell this story? So I feel like this and a couple other stories have a very clear theme to them that works really well with the characters. And, uh, for that one, I have to say, I really did enjoy this one. It, it, I was most anticipating it from the list of these stories and it meant, met my expectations here. Yeah, you're right. That last part was definitely needed. And that makes the story at the end because then it's meaningless because it could have ended with her just coming back and saying, you know, when she wakes up on the bed, this is like, you know, I'm here basically, you know, I I made it. It could have just ended Mm -hmm. there. Like some of the other stories we said where it just kind of ends. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it still would have made sense. It still would have been a coherent story, but yeah, it loses that meaning. I think if you, if you don't have that. Yeah. Cause now, because this story for the most part works the best by using Pulaski. You could have done mm-hmm. this maybe with, you know, McCoy or Crusher or Bashir, any doctor you could have done a story like this with, but it makes more sense to use Pulaski because the story concept comes from the fact that Pulaski can't come to grips with androids or with data. And so it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well then put Pulaski in the place of being an android. 
and see what that experience teaches her. That's the point of the story. Yeah, it would be like if somehow you could make McCoy a half Vulcan. Like, right. <laughs> it's that same idea, right? Yeah, which is yeah. kind of why why it's cool that Spock's Katra was in McCoy, you know, kind of giving him Absolutely. that experience. So, yeah. Yeah. It could have only been McCoy, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If the if the Katra's in Kirk, who cares? Like, it's his friend. But, yeah. Anyway. Different story, but I love it. Yep. Same idea, for sure. Well, we've got uh, just two left. Let's move on to The Expert. Another story by Gary Russell here. Which magazine is this one in? So this is in number five, The Digital Supplemental. Many of these in the first half are in The Digital Supplementals. But, yeah, so... The expert is in number five, digital supplemental. And now that I mentioned about the digital supplementals, people who buy the magazine on the newsstand benefit from buying this book if you never got the digital supplemental, because now you're getting all those stories, which is half of the stories in this book. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought of that, but that's true. Because there's there's nothing on the newsstand one that gives you access to the digital supplemental, is there? No, there's not. Mm-mm. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, even if you have the physical magazines, these, these are new stories to you and maybe it would be worth picking this book up for sure. So the expert is from the perspective of two kids of a Starfleet officer who are alone in their quarters in the dark. And it's increasingly apparent that something bad is happening aboard the ship. There's this older brother who's trying to comfort his younger sister here. Very quickly, through the use of this scale model that this kid is has been building with his dad, um, you discover they're on the Lalo. And when you have encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek, you know immediately what's going on because uh, that is from the TNG two-parter, The Best of Both Worlds where Admiral Hansen reports to the Enterprise that Starfleet has lost contact with the freighter Lalo. In their last message, they mentioned encountering a cube-shaped ship. And you're like, oh, crap. Okay, so we know what's going on here. This is the prelude to the best of both worlds. This is the freighter Lalo. It's getting attacked by the Borg. And earlier when I said I thought there wouldn't be a story quite as dark as the other one, boy, this one gives it a run for its money because you're reading this story about these kids and they're making their way through the ship. You know the ship is doomed because of what happens in Best of Both Worlds, but you still kind of hope that these kids somehow make it through, going through the trip, trying to find their dad, and they get separated at one point. The son wakes up, the daughter is gone, uh, he keeps going, does eventually find his dad, but his dad is now a Borg drone, and as the story ends, it's pretty clear that this kid's gonna get assimilated. It's dark, folks. It's, there's nothing, nothing good happens in this story, and it makes me very sad. Yeah, because if you look at this story without looking at the pictures and knowing that the Borg are involved, it sounds like it's starting off as a sweet story. You know, brother mm-hmm. and sister, he builds a model ship with his dad. His dad is off doing some work and he's taking care of his sister. And it just it just sounds like it could be a sweet story. But then, yeah, once the Borg and, and, and I thought it was interesting that they didn't know what the Borg was, these kids, because they saw the cube mm-hmm. out there and they thought it was like maybe a space station, but it moved, you know, and it's I guess officers would be aware of the Borg and at this point, but maybe not 
kids. You know, it's not they're not yeah. as generally well known until this point, really. The best of both yeah. worlds, right? So even then, it was like it was only the Enterprise D that had encountered the Borg. Yeah, ship and it's not like the this point. yeah, it's not like the kids are being debriefed from Starfleet records of a potential <laughs> danger out there. But yeah, it was scary. It was dark. It got, it just felt like it kept getting darker and darker. That's what I liked about it. That it didn't start off dark. It just, like the story with the androids, right away, it felt dark. This didn't, right away, it built towards it. And then when he separated from his sister, you know, I'm like, well, where's the sister? Where's she? And the whole time I'm thinking, I don't know how these kids are going to survive. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, and, and, or maybe, all the people get assimilated and they're now on the Borg ship and these kids are left alone, the ship abandoned for whatever. I, mean, I thought that might be a possibility, but yeah, when, when he got, when his dad assimilated him, that, that was, that was sad, you know? Yeah. That was brutal. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this story. I think it does a good job of making the Borg scary, which is something Star Trek kind of erodes sometimes as, as you use the Borg more often. I think this was a great return to the roots of that scary threat in the dark, right? Where it's just slowly taking over the ship and these kids are doomed. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily know that from the beginning of the story, but like I said, Lalo to me, I was like, okay, I know this ship is doomed. I guess the kids maybe make it out somehow. No, they don't. But yeah, that, that tension, I think Gary Russell does a good job of building that tension throughout the story and just making it seem darker and darker and scarier and scarier. So, uh, on that level, I think it really works. Um, as, as far as like a deeper meaning or a message in this story, I don't really think there's much there other than the Borg be scary, yo. <laughs> but, uh, Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of the story is basically the Borg are scary and kids get assimilated. You know, (laughs) it's like not everybody makes it out, right? It doesn't just affect the adults, it affects the kids. And then, you know, in a lot of ways you have to question again about was it right to have families with kids on starships? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There was one, one thing in here that kind of threw me that I had to read like three times. It's on the second page. Uh, towards the second half of the first column on that second page. But they're referring to Chief Engineer Peruas, Peruas, something like that. But anyway, the kid's mm-hmm. saying how, how, he, how he met the chief engineer through his dad and said that the chief engineer said he was really interested too. Dad took me to meet him. But then you go further down the page and Max is still talking about the chief engineer and says, she said she'd look into it and said, she, I would and then, so the chief hmm. engineer is a he and later turns into a she and is re- later referred to as she again. So I, I'm confused about this chief engineer. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't caught that, but good, good catch. I remember, I remembered something in that section thinking like something seems weird here and I didn't, I, I read it really quickly. I missed that, but that's good. Uh, The other thing in this story, and again, this is thanks to the art that's provided for the story and not necessarily jiving with some details in the story, which is a bit forgivable. I know the artists are given probably just a little brief on what they want for the story and they don't necessarily read through the story and make sure all the details are right or whatever. But in this, we've got 
the kid looking at the scale model that he's building with his dad of the ship, the Lalo. And it's like the Reliant, um, but it's the version with the engines on top above the Reliant rather than below. In the course of the story, he talks about how the Lalo has some sort of structural failure in it because of the way the engines are slung below the ship, whereas on most most ships they're above. So I was like, oh, they kind of mixed up that detail there. And they do double down on that in the story because he talks about the new California class ships that are coming that have the engines below, but they don't have that problem. So, hmm, little, just a little bit of an inconsistency there that I was like, ah, interesting. Unless he's just looking at his model upside down. <laughs> Could be, but the bridge is there on the top and stuff. Uh, yeah, unless it's true. got, yeah, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that chief engineer who keeps going from being a man and a woman really messes with the ship too. So the, the- yeah, the, Engines could flip top to bottom <laughs> exactly. a lot or yeah. something. <laughs> when the chief engineer is a he, the nacelles are on the top. When is a she, they're on the bottom. It just, they just switch on the top. I don't know. <laughs> that works. That works. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking about that with the chief engineer, like with that name, with the apostrophes in it, which usually indicates not human. Maybe there's something about the chief engineer's biology or something that, but then like, how would the kid know at what point in the conversation about the past to switch between <laughs> like, it, it gets very confusing. Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> or maybe the kid, maybe it was a woman the whole time and the kid was thinking, Oh wait, I keep referring to him as a he, but as a she, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We're again, we got to make it work. You know, we always have to find a way to make it work. <laughs> well, I guess uh, from that one, kind of a bit of a palate cleanser at this point, the last story we're going to talk about, because, you know, the expert, very dark story, very disturbing. We'll move on from that to Scramble by Greg Cox, which is a much more fun and light story. Uh, so the second story in this first seven by Greg Cox and in what magazine can we find that one in? This is an explorer number seven in the main magazine. Oh, okay. Excellent. So scramble, we start out with Picard and Troy enjoying a Dixon Hill mystery on the holodeck. However, surprise, surprise, the holodeck malfunctions and all these other programs start to bleed in and different programs are kind of meshing together. The first indication of this is Troy becomes Durango her character from A Fistful of Datas, the Western program that she was in with Worf and Alexander in that episode, which I love. I love that episode, by the way. So that was kind of fun. Basically, Picard is kind of like, oh, this is this is not good. This is bad. We need to shut everything down. Um, it's messing up my Dixon Hill program. And Troy says, no, let's just play it out. Let's have some fun. Let's Let's keep enjoying these malfunctions as they, you know, mix together all these, um, stories. The one thing I did like is Picard is like, wait, uh, computer, what is, what's the status of the safeties? <laughs> Holodeck's like, yeah, they're fine. He's like, okay, sure. We're good then. I'm glad they checked that because the number of times the holodeck becomes life-threatening, you shouldn't be playing around with it when it's malfunctioning is what I'm saying. But, uh, yeah. So we get all these mishmashes of different programs we've seen over the years, the murder on the Orient Express and, 
I think there's some Shakespeare characters, there's different aliens, there's different environments that they go through. Basically, they have a bit of fun with it, enjoy themselves, and that's kind of the story. That's basically it. Okay, so I enjoyed this. It was fun, like you said. Mm -hmm. I thought this would make a great comic book issue. I can see this being a comic book. The other thing is, I don't know what Greg Cox's intentions were in this, but the moral of the story to me is, if you're a Star Trek fan, just have fun with it. Don't worry about canon. Thank you. Yes, I was going to bring this up. I so love that you got that from this as well. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what Troy's basically, you know, that all these things start happening and Picard's like, we can't do this. This isn't Dixon Hill. This isn't how it works. That doesn't how you know? And she's like, just enjoy it. Just have fun with it. Let's just see what happens, right? Yeah. Like, just yes. enjoy it. I got that. That's so funny. I'm so glad you got that too. I totally thought of Picard as a bit of that stick in the mud fan who is like, well, that's not, that's not how Spock is supposed to act or that's not how blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, just let's see where this goes. Let's now saying that it's a malfunction, maybe (laughs) lends some credence to that side of the argument. But, um, yeah, I, I liked this. I enjoyed the fact that they were just kind of seeing where it went and enjoying it a little bit. And I definitely got that message as well. <laughs> but I don't blame Picard feeling that way. If I was on a holodeck, if I was doing a Star Trek adventure and all of a sudden, you know, Riker is on with a lightsaber, I'd be like, no, 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 no. There's no lightsabers in Star Trek. Like that doesn't even <laughs> make sense. Like, let's get this right, you know? But yeah, that that's the message I took from this. And I would love to know from Greg Cox if that's true or not. I hope he's listening. And then he like puts a message on our Facebook group answering that question, if that was his intention. Yeah, I totally, I, I have to imagine that's kind of where his mind was because it's that, that Picard line where he says that, where he's just getting all like harumph about it. That really struck me as, as speaking to that for sure. I do have to say, I love the imagery as well. And I love how many callbacks there are to old holodeck programs we've seen over the years. We have the bridge of the USS Enterprise, no bloody A, B, C, or D. We've got the 19th century sailing ship from Generations, a romantic moonlit beach, which I think was where Jordy had that date with the, with Christy Henshaw and was plying her with drinks and stuff. And, And yeah, like the Orient Express and all these different things that was a lot of fun it was that's a good point and i hadn't thought of it. it this would be a lot of fun to see in comic form yeah i just really could especially that part you just mentioned that's when i started thinking i could see this in a comic <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so yeah that it was a lot of fun and uh again the pacing was right it fit in the story and you know troy's got a lot of good stories in this book so if you're a troy fan i think uh, this is a book yeah, to pick up that's true for sure well, that's uh, that's all seven of those stories, I guess. Now, again, like I said, there's 14 in this book, so we will be doing a part two at some point. It won't be the next book club episode. It'll be a, a few episodes down the line, but we are going to revisit this. Uh, there's some more stories by like Una McCormick and James Swallow and some other big names like that. So really excited to get to those. But so for just these first seven stories, I guess, are there favorites that stuck out? 
out to you? And are there maybe, I will keep it positive, I guess. Maybe we won't say what are like the ones we hated were. I don't think there's any in here that I hate, but what, what stuck out to you as some kind of stars of this first seven here? Yeah, you're right. I didn't hate any of them. I enjoyed them all, um, but I enjoyed some more than others. But yeah, this last one we talked about, the scramble, that was a lot of fun. I did the Guardian, that second one that we did, that, I don't know, that was, I found that so creepy that I really enjoyed it. And because now I want to watch TOS based on that, I think I might put that at the top. Um, the story with Riker phasing out, I enjoyed it, but the one with Guinan, yeah, I would say the Guardian and the one with I can't remember which one that was called. What was that one? Pagabi. Oh, yeah, yeah Pagabi. That those two I would say were my favorite. And then right after that would be Scramble and Pulaski and the Expert. Not necessarily in those orders. Like that's my tier one and tier two. Yeah. I think my top one personally is Pagabi. I really enjoyed that story. I thought it was it was top notch for sure. Um but Pulaski 2.0 is nipping at its heels a bit as well. I really enjoyed that story. I, I was really anticipating that story. I was getting my hopes up for it and I was kind of worried, Oh, maybe, maybe I'm getting my hopes up too much, but it delivered. I thought it was a really fascinating story for sure. Those are my two favorite for sure. Uh, I would say the guardian behind that is, is also really good. And yeah, it makes me want to revisit that story again too. That was a lot of fun. Scramble, I'd say, probably comes next for me. That was fun. And then, yeah, the expert, the disavowed and control are kind of, you know, they're they're good. They're still good. They're all worth reading. There's nothing that's, like I said, that I hate. But the ones that I mentioned at the top, those are definitely the standouts for my, to me. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, I mean, I, we're pretty much on the same page a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I, I that that's a good order, I think. Um but now it'll be interesting the next seven to see what we think and how those relate. To yeah. Those, you know? Well, I'm looking forward to that because uh, from there, it looks like I said, we're kind of going in chronological order. So then we're getting into a bunch of Deep Space Nine stories, it looks like, which uh, that makes me very happy. So I'm very much looking forward to those. I love TNG. I love TOS, but give me some Deep Space Nine and some some of those characters. So like I said, that'll be in a few weeks time. I think on the next book club episode, we've got the Star Trek Picard novel firewall, which uh, came out this week. If you're listening to this episode as it's being released. So I hope everybody is diving deep into that book. We'll have an interview with David Mack, of course, in that episode. And uh, then a few weeks after that, we'll get back to uh, part two of this book. So uh, Bruce, thank you so much for coming back on the show. You're definitely going to have to come back for part two. <laughs> yes, I will come back for part two. I was telling Dan before the show that I haven't bought this book since I have all the digital issues of the magazine, but I think I still will buy the book just because I want to keep them all together and on a shelf somewhere. So there you go, publisher. You got money for me for the magazine and the book, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, so that was really fun. I'm looking forward to talking about the next half. I'm Really curious to see how that goes. Absolutely. Well, like I said, we'll have that in a few weeks. But until then, keep reading. And as always, stay positive. Positively Trek is produced and edited by me, Dan Gunther, and co-produced by Barry DeFord on Treaty 8 Territory, the home of the Beaver, Cree, Dene, and Métis people, 
whose histories, languages, and cultures we respect. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.